Great job. Well, good morning, everyone. I'm John Schmidt. I'm the senior pastor here at Centerpoint Fellowship Church. And today we're on our journey, as part of our journey in our series, Behind the Music. It's a Christmas series. We're looking at different Christmas carols that we sing and explaining why we sing them. It's entirely possible to get up at a Christmas carol, at a Christmas party or other things, and people start singing a carol, and you're going, what did we just sing? What does that mean? And why would we say that anyway? And today, we're going to look at the Christmas carol, We Three Kings, which you just heard. That uh, carol was written back in the 1800s, in 1857, by a guy named John Hopkins. And he was a reverend. He had nothing to do with the medical research center or anything like that. Uh, But he was somebody who was a uh, music teacher at General Theological Seminary in New York City at the time. And apparently, he wrote this little carol as uh, a carol to be sung at a Christmas pageant for his nieces and nephews. And so this was a great way to get the three three kings into the play, and one of them singing a verse about gold, and another one singing a verse about uh, frankincense, another about myrrh, and they would walk on in. And uh, it just caught on. Pretty soon it was published. We got all around the country, and now you can't go through Christmas time without singing about We Three Kings of Orient Are. Well, I want to tell you the story behind the music, the story behind the three kings, who they were and why we sing that song anyway. So there's an outline in your bulletin today. And if you take it in your hand, if you need a pen to fill in the blanks, if you got in here without a pen, just raise your hand and our ushers will be glad to pass one to you. And we're going to jump in and tell you the story behind the music. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, I just thank you so much for the opportunity to look at your word. The story of the wise men is a great story. And I pray, O Father, that you will speak, that you'll move me out of the way and teach us what we need to know and how this story might apply to our lives, well, on the Christmas of 2013. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Again, just raise your hand if you need a pen. Those pens will be coming to you. The three kings in the song were wise men. This is point one on your outline. The three kings in the song were wise men. Matthew 2 tells us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem during the reign of King Herod. Now, if you read a Christmas story or a Christmas carol uh, by Dickens, it'll tell you that you have to understand that Scrooge's partner, Marley, was dead. He was dead as a doornail and had been so for a number of years, for six years. Uh, If you don't uh, have that right, then none of of the rest of the story makes sense because Scrooge was visited by Marley's ghost. Well, the same thing's kind of true if you're going to understand the story of the wise men you have to understand a little bit of history. And you're going, oh my goodness, I graduated from junior high and thought I'd never had to go back to this, okay? Uh, But anyway, I want to point out to you a couple of things that are important of this little rough sketch of the uh, area around the Mediterranean Sea and of uh, modern-day Israel. Israel, on this map, this would have been, what I'm trying to illustrate to you, have been the time of Herod, about 40 years before Christ was born, when Herod came to power. The nation of Israel is pretty much located exactly where Israel is today. Um, To the south would be Egypt, everything to the west. In fact, pretty much the whole area around the Mediterranean Sea had been conquered by Rome, and the Romans were in charge. Off in Persia over here were Afghanistan and um, all of the Middle East, what we would call the Middle Eastern uh, countries here uh, would be uh, Parthia at that time. We'll call those the Parthians. Uh, We can put the Euphrates River here. Uh, But the idea is simply this, that um, at that time, the Romans were in charge and they left vassal kings, puppet kings, in charge of their territory. So they would appoint someone to rule Israel and collect the taxes and keep peace. And uh, there was a guy in 
the southern part of Israel, who was pretty much in charge of the southern section of the country, Idumea, by the name of Herod. Well, the Parthians saw a chance when there was some unrest and some disturbance in Rome, when they seemed kind of distracted over here, and they decided they'd come in and they would conquer Syria and they would put their man in charge of Israel. So instead of paying taxes over here and giving allegiance to Rome, he'd give it to them. Well, when that happened and they put their guy on the throne in Jerusalem, this worried Herod. And so Herod made a beeline to Rome, got on a fast ship to Rome and said, hey, you got trouble over there in Israel. That, uh, Parthians are coming in. They're putting a man in power over there. If you guys make me king and put me in uh, as the king over all the Jewish people, well, I'll be loyal to Rome. I mean, I will salute. I'll collect your taxes. I'll keep the peace. I'm good. You can count on me. So the Roman Senate took a vote, and in 39 B.C., they said that they proclaimed that Herod was the king of the Jews. And that was their deal. And that's what Herod wanted. That was the title he had requested. I want to be king of the Jews. And they said, all right, you'll be king of the Jews. So they sent troops with him. He came back, laid siege to Israel. And two years later, they conquered it. They grabbed the other guy and they executed him. And then Herod was installed as king. And Herod was ruthless. He wanted to make sure, first of all, the Parthians never caused trouble for him again. So he built a whole series of fortresses along the eastern flank to make sure there was a wall of protection if these guys ever wanted to start some trouble around him again. He was going to make political alliances with these people in the west. He was going to have military, military action if the people attacked from the east. He was covering every base here. And Herod wanted power, a lot of power. He would kill you if you got in the way. He had ten wives. He executed... I think three of them, maybe four. I don't remember exactly. He had a number of sons by those wives, executed a number of them as well. Ruthless. He was always worried that somebody was going to poison him. Somebody was going to come behind him. Somebody was going to take his throne. Didn't even mind killing his own family because he wanted to protect power. So you need to understand that or else none of the rest of this story makes sense. Now let's go back into Matthew chapter 2. Well, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, which would have been, you know, 35, 40 years later here when Jesus was born, during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, hey, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it arose, and we have come to worship him. So all of a sudden here, after, he thought, uh, after Herod has thought he's got everything under control, Toward the end of his reign, all of a sudden, there's some wise men from the east who are coming in and saying, where's the king of the Jews? And Herod's going, I'm king of the Jews. They're going, no, 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 the newborn one. We saw a star. Where's he? Well, I don't know. And you better think that that got the wheels rolling. It's important to note that these wise men are what we call magi. They were members of a priestly class among the ancient Medes and Persians. Well, now we've got to go back to the map again, only this time instead of 39 B.C., if you're talking about something that happened 600 B.C., 600 years before Christ was born, there was, at that time, Babylon was the world power over here in the east. And the Babylonians came in and they sacked Israel and they 
ransacked the place, destroyed the temple, destroyed the king's palace, and took back the best and the brightest of all the Israelites, took them back to Babylon, the capital city, under the uh, rule of uh, a strong and powerful king by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. One of those guys that they brought back, a brilliant young man, was a man named Daniel. You might have heard of three of his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were also taken back at that time. And what's interesting is, is that Daniel rose to power as a wise man, somebody exactly like the people we're talking about today. Now, the old, and that's the second note in your outline, and this is from Daniel 5, where Daniel is described here. There is a man in your kingdom who has within him the spirit of the holy gods. During Nebuchadnezzar's reign, this man was found to have insight and understanding and wisdom like that of the gods. Your predecessor, King Nebuchadnezzar, made him chief over all the magicians and enchanters and astrologers and fortune tellers of Babylon. And this man, Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, has exceptional ability and is filled with divine knowledge and understanding. He can interpret dreams and explain riddles and solve difficult puzzles. And so the role of the magi was to assist the king. And so the magi would interpret dreams and visions And if they needed to use tea leaves or if they needed to use stars in the way astrological phenomenon, astrology was considered a science to them, or if you had to interpret a dream, the kings would count on this of when to go to battle. So these people became very powerful and very important. And Daniel was one of those people. And so all of a sudden now, back in the days of Herod, all of a sudden some guys from the east, these cabinet-level people. I mean, in the United States government, we have the Secretary of Defense and the Secretary of Agriculture. Well, this would be the Secretary of Magic and Dreams, okay? (laughs) And you wonder if we have one of those somewhere, you know. Do we have a guy like that? Because we could use him at times. Okay, but the point is, is that if we have a, if you had a Secretary of Magic and Dreams, well, this would be the guy that the king was called on. And if you sent out a secretary of defense somewhere to go visit someone, you can imagine he has an entourage. He has a plane and he has bodyguards and he has people attending to his schedule. Well, so did these guys. And so all of a sudden they show up at Herod's doorstep and it's a big deal. And that takes us to point two. The wise men disturbed everyone in Jerusalem when they showed up. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone else in Jerusalem. You got to remember, when King Herod was disturbed, you better be disturbed because you could be next on the list. You could. There's a story of how he had a swimming party one summer, and one of the guests on the list was a rightful heir to the throne. Uh, There was a family line that had been in power before Herod came to power, and a rightful heir to that throne, who was a teenager at the time, was invited to the party. And while he was playing with some of Herod's men, you know, they were dunking each other in the pool. They happened to dunk him for like six minutes and he died. But anyway, that's just the way it was at Herod's parties. Hey, I think you might be a threat. Yeah, and the joke in Rome was it was better to be Herod's pig than to be his wife. He had a longer lifespan. I mean, he was ruthless. He would kill people and to get what he wanted. And so he was deeply disturbed when he heard that these men from the east were coming. He'd, built and he'd, he'd gone and built fortresses to protect from invasions from the east. Was this going to be a big war starting? Was there a war between the Parthians and, and, Rome, and the Romans coming up? Was he going to be caught in the middle of some big conflict? Were these guys coming here just to stir up trouble? He didn't want trouble. 
Was there really a new king coming who would take his place? He didn't want that either. And so he called a meeting of the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law, and he asked, well, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? The Messiah was clearly taught throughout the Old Testament scriptures, a great deliverer of the line of King David, the greatest of Israel's kings, was coming. And they should be looking for him. And so Herod went and asked the, the leading religious authorities about this. And he said, where is he supposed to be born? Well, in Bethlehem of Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. And then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men. He learned from them what time the star had first appeared. And then he told them, now go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can worship him too. And it was a trick to see if he could get them to go down there and figure out who this was. And it's important to note here, the priests and the teachers of religious law were quoting Micah 5.2. This had been a prophecy written about 700 years before Jesus was born. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you're only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. And it's amazing that prophecy was being fulfilled right in their presence. But what's even more amazing is point three, that people responded to the news of Jesus' birth in different ways. First of all, you have these religious leaders who've just quoted Micah 5 too. They didn't seem to care. They didn't seem to care. I mean, these guys from the east show up. They said, hey, we've seen some kind of astrological sign in the heavens that is convincing us that there is something supernatural happening here? Where is this newborn king of the Jews? By the way, when Daniel had been captured and taken over to Babylon and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were there, well, they spent the rest of their lives there. The Israelites were in their captivity for 70 years. And when a number of the Jews came back and resettled Israel, some of them stayed. And there would have been numerous copies of prophecies and other things predicting the Messiah that the wise men would have had access to. So it's not at all unusual that they would have come to Jerusalem after seeing this sign in the heavens. What's terribly unusual is that the leaders in Jerusalem didn't care. The wise men were coming to find Jesus, making this long trip. The people had all the information right at their fingertips, didn't even seem to care. In John 1, John, one of Jesus' disciples, talks about this. Although the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him when he came. Even in his own land and among his own people, he was not accepted. They didn't seem to care. I mean, they said they were waiting for this great Messiah to come, and yet when these wise men show up, the Bible doesn't record that any of them even bothered to go with them and see. Even check it out. And I don't know what they were waiting for. It's also interesting that the wise men, though they didn't have all the scriptures and weren't experts in it like the Jewish leaders were, they acted on what they knew, and so they went and they worshipped Jesus as a great king. They went and worshipped him. The Bible says that once again, after they left Herod, the star appeared to them, guiding them to Bethlehem. Bethlehem was about five miles, five, or is, is still, it's still there. It's located five or six miles south of Jerusalem. Once again, the star appeared to them, guiding them to Bethlehem. It went on ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. And they entered the house where the child and his mother Mary were, and they fell down before him, and they worshipped him. 
And then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And so in this story, you find these folks who have seen some sign in the heavens. And there, you can Google this and you can find people that will, um, there could be a number of explanations for exactly what the star was. Was it a convergence of planets? Was it a comet? Was it a supernova or a star exploding? Nobody knows for sure. But one thing that it clearly says here is that after they left Herod, the star appeared to them again and it moved and stopped over the house where Jesus was. Well, that would indicate to me that it was something supernatural. It wasn't that long ago I um, had a conversation with somebody and they said, well, you know, I believe in Jesus and I believe he died on the cross and rose from the dead and he's coming back to get us one day soon, but I just don't know about that Christmas star business. And I go, so you mean you believe in a Savior who walked on water and raised people from the dead, who rose from the dead himself, ascended into heaven, is come back, coming back to get us when heaven's ready, and the star is the part that trips you up? I mean, that, that's the easiest part of the story to believe. Okay, that's not a big deal. And sometimes I think when we try to find explanations for all these things, look, this is a supernatural event. God became flesh and dwelt among us. And... I don't know exactly what the wise men saw, but it was something supernatural, and God brought it about. It's also important to note in the last note at the bottom of your page there that the gifts of the wise men turned out to be providential or prophetic. And if you flip your outline over, I'll explain what the gold, the frankincense, and the myrrh, what that was all about. In fact, if you would kind of open your outline on this page right here, you'll see where gold and frankincense and myrrh are, and on the back side... You'll find the lyrics to that song, We Three Kings. And each of the verses lines up with one of the gifts. Here's the second verse of the song. Born a king on Bethlehem's plain, gold I bring to crown him again. King forever, ceasing never over us all to reign. So gold, now back to your outline again, gold is a gift fit for a king. In the Old Testament, this is what the Queen of Sheba brought Solomon when she came to visit him. This is from 1 Kings 10. When the Queen of Sheba realized how very wise Solomon was, and when she saw the palace that he had built, she was overwhelmed. And then she gave the gift, then she gave the king a gift of 9,000 pounds of gold, great quantities of spices, and precious jewels. I mean, that's all I want for Christmas. How about you? Four and a half tons of gold. I don't know how you put that under a tree, but it'd be nice. Well, that's a gift fit for a king. Now, the wise men didn't bring Jesus four and a half tons of gold, but they did bring him gold. Now, whether they knew exactly that he was the king of kings, I mean, we don't know. But they knew there was something special about him. The things they saw in the heavens and the prophecies they'd read, hmm, this is some kind of special king. And so they brought him a gift fit for a king, a gift of gold. They also brought him frankincense, which is the next blank to fill in on your outline. And if you flip back to the lyrics of the song again um, about the three wise men, frankincense to offer of I, incense owns a deity nigh, prayer and praising all men raising, worship him God on high. And frankincense, then back to your outline, is incense offered to a deity, offered to God. So here they bring him, the first gift is a gift fit for a king. This is just a little baby in a house with Joseph and Mary, ordinary people. They weren't in a palace, so it seems unusual they would give him a gift that was fit for a king. They weren't in a temple, yet they gave him a gift that was fit for a god, for a deity. 
And in Leviticus 2, we see that the Israelites had been instructed to use frankincense as part of their sacrifices and their worship. It was an incense. And when it burned, the smoke went up to the heavens, and also it gave off a fragrant aroma. God wanted the Israelites to burn incense when they prayed because the prayers, when they go up to heaven, God is pleased when we pray instead of worrying. Our prayers are like a pleasant aroma to him. He loves it when we pray instead of worrying. You know, that's the way it is when we live life without God. We fret and we worry and we struggle and we talk to ourselves in the car and we get all wound up, get all wound around the axle about a hundred things and God's going, well, why don't you just lift it up to me? You don't know how to handle this anyway. I'll help you. Your, your prayers are pleasing to me when they, go up to, when they come up to heaven. Pray, don't worry. In Leviticus, they were told to offer their sacrifices using frankincense. When you present a grain offering, when you present grain as an offering to the Lord, the offering must consist of choice flour. You're to pour olive oil on it, sprinkle it with frankincense, and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. The priests will scoop out a handful of the flour moistened with oil together with all the, all the frankincense and burn this representative portion on the altar. And it's a special gift, a pleasing aroma to God. Hmm. A gift that was fit for a king, but they weren't in a palace. A gift that was fit for God, but they weren't in the temple. And then finally, the third gift is myrrh, a perfume that the Jews used for many things, but they used it in embalming, interestingly enough. Back to the verse of that of the We Three Kings. Myrrh is mine, its bitter perfume breathes a life of gathering gloom. Sorrowing, sighing, bleeding, dying, sealed in the stone-cold tomb. And when John Hopkins wrote that verse, he was thinking probably of what John wrote in John 19. When Jesus was crucified, the same baby Jesus worshipped by the wise men grew up to become the Jesus, the one who died on the cross for our sins. And after he died on the cross, his body was asked for. There was a man named Joseph of Arimathea who asked Pilate, the Roman governor at the time, if he could take Jesus' body down off the cross and bury it in a family crypt that he owned. And John records it this way, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for permission to take down Jesus' body. And when Pilate gave him permission, Joseph came and took the body away. With him came Nicodemus, and he brought 75 pounds of perfumed ointment made from myrrh and aloes. And following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices in long sheets of linen cloth a gift fit for someone who is about to die. So here's this little baby, a gift for a king, a gift for God, and a gift for someone who is going to die. Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus is the Lord of lords, and he came into this world to die for my sins and yours. And whether or not they understood all this, we don't know. But these were costly gifts that the wise men brought and laid at Jesus' feet, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And you contrast that with the religious leaders who in Jerusalem, even though they had all the scriptures, they didn't even bother to go look. You can contrast it with one other person, that's King Herod. This is point C on your outline. Herod tried to kill the baby Jesus because Jesus was a threat to his throne. Jesus was a threat to his power base. 
Now, when it was time for the wise men to leave after they'd worshiped Jesus and given him gifts, they went home another way because God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Herod was furious when he learned that the wise men had outwitted him. I mean, that's what happens when you try to outwit God, by the way. God's smarter. I'll let you in on it. And Herod was going, how did this guy's outwit me? And he sent his soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under because the wise men had told him that this, when the star had first appeared to them about two years earlier. I mean, it had taken them probably after the star appeared. They would have discussed it. They would have organized supplies and organized the trip. In the book of Ezra, there's a priest who goes back to rebuild the temple from Babylon. And he comes all the way back. takes him about four months. It's 900 miles at least on camelback or with a wagon. So you don't know how long it took them, but it took a while. And they wouldn't have just shown up. There were probably a lot more than three of them. They would have at least had a big entourage of people supporting them. So the priest didn't even bother to go look. The wise men worshipped him, and Herod wanted to kill him. Three responses in Jesus' day. But I'd like to spend a few minutes, and that brings us to a life application for you and me, that you and I need to decide how we're going to respond to Jesus. I must decide how I'm going to respond to Jesus this Christmas. And on your um, outline of three circles, and I'll start with the right circle first. This is a response of a non-Christian. Each of the circles, by the way, for this to make sense, if you would just take your pen and draw in, it looks like a squared H. It's really representing a chair or a throne, the pilot's seat of an airplane, if you will, a driver's seat. The person who sits on the throne makes the decisions. They're in charge, they're in control. Well, for a non-Christian, you can put an S on top of that chair. This stands for self. By the way, this is all from a wonderful little blue booklet called Have You Made the Discovery of the, the Wonderful Discovery of the Spirit-Filled Life by Bill Bright, who founded Campus Crusade for Christ, and this is where I got all this from. There's a marvelous, uh, there are marvelous illustrations in that little booklet, and this is one of them. But the idea is this, that I'm on the throne, as a non-Christian, I'm on the throne, and Jesus, if you draw a cross outside the circle, Jesus has no part of my decision-making. I mean... Before I came to Christ, this was my life. I made my own decisions. Why on earth would I talk to Jesus about my life? It's my money. It's my time. These are my friends. What do I care what the Bible has to say about it? And so when a person becomes a Christian, everything changes. And then myself, when I come to Christ, I get off the throne and I say, Lord, I'm surrendering control of my life to you. I mean, that's the difference between a non-Christian and a Christian is who drives. Jesus is Lord. It's a question of whether we're going to recognize that or not. And if you and I are going to come to Christ, we need to repent. And if you draw a little U-turn arrow here, that's exactly what's involved. I'm going to quit going the wrong way with myself on the throne. And I'm going to live God's way. I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus. I had a fellow that came to the 8 o'clock service. We prayed together after a, um, a service three weeks ago, right up front here. And he gave his life to Christ, and he came up today, and he said, I just want you to know, 
First time in my life now, I'm three weeks sober, all because of Jesus. And he looked at these circles and he said, you tell the people in these other services today, this is true. And I said, well, I was going to tell them it's true whether you came forward or not, okay. Because it's true in my life. And it's true in yours. I mean, people responded to Jesus different ways the first Christmas. People still respond to him different ways this Christmas. Some people have no use for him. I'm running my life. Keep your Bible to yourself. Thanks, but no thanks. Some of us, though, have discovered, hey, I'm a fool to keep running my life into the ground. And when I gave my life to Jesus, not only can he sober up a drunk, but he can, take, he can forgive all my sins and set me free and give me a whole new direction for my life. Can anybody else say amen to that? Amen. Man, it's true. It's why we sing praises to him. But there's a third category here. On your outline, we just called that the worldly Christian. And the worldly Christian, somehow or another, self has gotten back on, on the throne, and Jesus is just part of my life. I had some Baptist friends tell me that's called backsliding is what that's called. You can call it whatever you want. It just means that for whatever reason, again, now, I've decided, well, God, I'm going to let you be part of my life but I'm not going to surrender my life to you as my Lord. See, if you're my Lord, you're my king. You run the show. You make the decisions. I'm going to read the Bible, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to talk to other Christians to see what they know, but the whole goal is just to find out, God, what you want from my life, because your plan's better than my plan, and you want what's best for me more than I want what's best for me, and I trust you. person in this circle, by the way, is the most miserable of all three. Because when they're out at the bar drinking themselves silly on Saturday night, they feel guilty because they know they got to go to church the next morning. If they're going to keep up both sides happy here, keep both sides happy. And then when they're at church the next morning, they feel guilty for going to the bar on Saturday night. And they got to walk out like this because they didn't wash the bar stamp all the way off. So I got secrets going both ways. And I'm never becoming all that God wants me to be. And Jesus says in the last book of the Bible in Revelation, he says, look, I wish that you were cold or hot. But if you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. I mean, who wants a lukewarm Coke? You're going to give me something to drink, make it cold or hot, but I don't want a lukewarm. And this Christmas, you and I have to ask ourselves, Hey, where, where are we in relationship to Jesus? Now, if I use this stool as representative, as representation of this chair, I have to ask myself this Christmas, well, who's on the throne in my life? I mean, who makes the decisions? Do I pray about things? Do I pray about my money? Do I pray about my time? Do I pray about my relationships? Am I sincere in my faith? Or do I just kind of put Jesus in the mix somewhere? I mean, for me to surrender my life to Christ, man, that was a decision I made in college. Happened in a basketball gym when I was by myself one night. Got off the throne. I heard somebody explain all this, and I said, Lord, it's time I surrendered control to you. I'm not going to drive anymore. You drive. Now, since that time, have I ever had areas in my life where I kind of ooched back on? Oh, you bet. 
What's interesting is, same cure as the first time, though. If I discover I've snuck back on the throne, that's time for me to repent again. Say, God, I don't know what I was thinking. I, give, I re-surrender my life to you. Now, Peter talked about this. You'll see that reference there in 1 Peter 3.15. Instead, you must worship Christ as the Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. If someone asks you, hey, why'd you quit drinking three weeks ago? What happened? Well, you tell them I got off the throne of my life and I surrendered to Jesus Christ and he changed me. And he'll do it for you too. The same hope is available to you. That's why Jesus came into the world. That's why the wise men worshiped him. And that's why it's important that we worship him and we acknowledge him as Lord. And this Christmas, that's why we sing the songs. Because Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And our worship is due him. And there's one more point I want to make, and it ties, it fits together with all of this. And that's this, that God is stronger than evil. It comes out of this story as well. God is stronger than evil. After the wise men were gone, the angel, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph, too, in a dream. Get up and flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay here, stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to try to kill the child. So that night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. And Herod did come, and he slaughtered all the boys two years old and under. There's a life application for you and me in this. The Lord protects those who trust in him so we don't need to worry or be afraid. I don't need to worry or be afraid because I serve a mighty God and so do you. How great is the goodness you have stored up for those who fear you. This is David, a man after God's own heart. You lavish it on those who come to you for protection, blessing them before the watching world. You hide them in the shelter of your presence, safe from those who conspire against them. You shelter them in your presence, far from accusing tongues. Love the Lord, all you godly ones, for the Lord protects those who are loyal to him. But he harshly punishes the arrogant, so be strong and courageous, all of you who put your hope in the Lord. And I want all of us to understand, here's one of the great fringe benefits of surrendering our life to the Lord. I can surrender my guilt and my sin and my shame. I can surrender my, surrender my stubborn, stony heart. And what Jesus says is, look, I'll forgive all your sins. I'll show you a better path for your life. And John, when evil people come against you, or Susie, when evil people come against you, or Billy, or whoever you are, it's true for all of us. When evil people come against you, I'll protect you because you belong to me, and I'm the one in control of your life. I'll watch over you and guide you along the best path of your life, path for your life. I'll protect you. So what you're saying is, if I let God sit on the throne of my life, my sins are forgiven, I'll have direction and meaning and a rich, full life, and God will protect me from evil? Yeah, I don't know if I'm ready for that. I think I'd rather worry and fret and go back and forth chasing all kinds of ideas of what people think brings them happiness and success. I think I'd love to keep wasting money, wasting time, and burning through relationships like firewood. How about you? And yet this is what we find in our culture all the time. This is the deal. The Lord says, look, I made you. I designed you. I have a plan for your life. Let me drive. 
and I'll protect you. The story does not say that Joseph and Mary stayed up all night going, what are we going to do to get away from Herod? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And so they went and got like bows and arrows and defended themselves. You know what it says? It says that they were just obedient to what God told them to do. And when it came time for them to leave, God warned them in advance so they could get out of the way. The wise men, same thing. What did they do? Well, they just followed what little they knew. And God protected them. So I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer here this morning, kind of to tie this all together. And I want to challenge you to join me. And the way I'm going to do it is I'm going to spend some time just kneeling here at this stool and leading us in prayer. And if you're able, and if you don't have a sore knee or a bad back or other things, and you're able to kneel right at the chair where you are, I'd invite you to turn around and kneel at the chair where you are, and then I'd invite you to pray along with me. So would you do that right now, please, if you're able? I mean, while you're kneeling, I'll just remind us, that one, of the reason, one of the advantages of teaching kids to pray by kneeling beside their bed is it reminds us of who's king and who's not. You kneel in the presence of a great king. The wise men fell down and worshipped him. And I'd like for us to pray together. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for the opportunity we have to pray. And Lord, forgive us for how selfish and self-centered we can be. In just a moment of silence this morning, if the Lord has spoken to you about running your own life and making bad decisions and you have not surrendered control of your life to the Lord, would you surrender it now and say, God, forgive me for being so foolish and so stubborn and so wrong. Your prayers are sweet incense to him. He longs to hear from you. Pray to him and ask him to forgive you and to direct your life. Well, Father, we come before you also and we not only pray for that you would forgive us of our sins and we surrender our lives to you. Some of us need to pray, Lord, we did this years ago and we've just gotten into old relationships and back into bad habits. We're allowing an addiction or a relationship to control us. And Lord, we want to resurrender our lives to you. If that's you this morning and you came here and you can't believe we're talking about this this morning, would you just pray and say, God, you must have brought me here today. And God, I'm so sorry I've been running from you. I don't want to backslide, Lord. I don't want to play games. I need you to show me your path for my life because I know you know what's right better than I do. And finally, some of us here this morning just need to pray because we're bound up with worry and fear. We have a tough meeting coming up this week, a hard decision to make. And would you just pray with me right now, if that's you? Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you that if I surrender my life to you, you promise to guide me and protect me. And so, God, I'm going to trust that if there's a decision I need to make, if there's information I need to collect, you'll show me where to find it. If there's someone I need to talk to, you'll put that person in front of me or you'll put their phone number on my mind. And Lord, I am not going to spend this holiday season bound up in worry and fear. You protected the wise men. 
You protected baby Jesus. You protected Joseph and Mary. And Lord, you'll protect me too. If God's asking you to trust him more, pray about that right now and say, God, please help me trust you and help me not worry so much and be afraid. Well, Lord, I thank you for Christmas time. Lots of wonderful traditions, lots of great food and beautiful music and time with family and friends. And Father, I just pray that you'll help us not miss the reason for the season. Help us be wise and to seek you the same way that the Magi did. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, the one at whose feet they fell and worshiped. Amen.